Well, we're here. Yeah. Uh, end of the campaign. Uh, thank you again for agreeing to do this. So, uh, ladies, folks, gentlemen, welcome to the traditional post-mortem after every campaign. Uh, as uh, it went really well last time when I interviewed Nagel, I've uh, asked uh, Geo here to step up and uh, interview me for the sake of this one. Since uh, the first uh, post-mortem I'm forever disappointed with, given that it was just me kind of rambling at the air for, like, eight minutes. I like to think of these post-mortems as somehow... Anyone involved in them enters a void. And that also helps just bring out all these thoughts that were always on your mind to stuff that was just maybe repressed because it didn't happen. Oh yeah, the, the could-have-been dimension. The, uh, the place where we wish things had happened. Uh, uh, though there is an audience in this dimension. I think last time there was just like that one guy in the crowd going, Woo! Before... I was even involved with this back when this was just starting up. And you made, like, a really rad PDF guide for your players. Yes, the info dump. Uh, so first of all, uh, to every other GM, this info dump page is, like, 31 pages long. And the only reason I wrote it that long is because I already sold my players on the campaign. If you're doing something like this, I would recommend keeping it to a page. But the point of having this document was to give the players uh, everything they would need to know in a condensed guide, like all of the rules for how to build a character, for combat, for sanity. Like, this was made as a reference document for that. As, long, as well as a uh, look into the world and uh, all that uh, it contained. There was something really... I don't think every... GM would have done this, but you did mm -hmm. at the very end, the, the spoiler warning. So this is one of those things that I think most GMs would not do. Uh, I spoiled my players up front that uh, Bennett, or as he's actually called in the book, uh, Jackson Elias, uh, dies. He dies at the very beginning of the campaign, and that, to me... Uh, many GMs, and I'm in a Discord group for uh, the Masks of Nyarlathotep support group, uh, but it's uh, many many of keepers don't want to uh, spoil the surprise. They want it to be a shock. And I'm like, there's no reason to really do that because it's the hook. And if I tell them up front, hey, this guy's going to die and you need to really care about him, well, then that makes it more about the players embracing the tragic. I don't think my players are going to try to cheat here, but I trust my players more than most other people do. Uh, I think it's because I have a group that really is mostly consistent of actors and explorers rather than killers. So as a result, they're going to be more interested in telling the story rather than trying to cheat the rules because they know this character uh you know, dies, and so we can just get behind him as a meat shield. And to be fair, you did essentially make it an option. You had the full warning, like, don't go past this point if you don't want to be spoiled. Oh, yeah, no, it was a choice. But I wanted the players to, like, if they had their suspicions about, uh, you know, Bennett early on, I want them to eventually just go, let me read what the spoilers say, because I think I know what's happening here. Like, 
I I think it worked better than when I told them about the death of Julius Smith in Hoto. Because Horror on the Orient Express, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, hey, Julius is your friend. And then it was like, well, that's kind of cheap that I just kill him off instantly. It's like... You are so right. I didn't realize that was like the... Ho- for Yeah. No, no, Call of Cthulhu, it, it, it's a trope of this whole thing. It's like... Must avenge my friend and or esteemed colleague. In the words of Seth Skorkowski, um... Ah, yes. My friend, Douglas, has died. Ah, you know, I knew him so well. My friend, Douglas. Yes, yes, truly a tragic loss for all of us. No, this has actually become a bit of a joke. One of the first ever uh, tabletop actual plays of this campaign is called The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. And the whole joke is that, like, they had no clue who Jackson Elias was. So they just kind of like, yeah, we're all his good friend, and that's how the name was coined. To try to remediate that situation, mm-hmm. because from what you've told me, actual Masks of Nyarlathotep did not do justice on this, but you included a lot of different pre-main campaign, post-prologue adventures with him. Can you talk about that for a bit? Uh, sure. So, Masks of Nyarlathotep in 1985, when it first comes out, uh, first of all, Jackson Elias, as it was originally written, uh, you know, first of all, was generic, boring, white adventurer man, and was killed off very unceremoniously, and they didn't do anything about this. Now, in the latest edition that came out in 2018, they added the Peru chapter, which goes a little bit farther in helping out with that, but I really felt like one or two sessions is not enough time to get to know this guy, so I needed him to feel like he was a member of the gang. So, I deliberately designed him to fill in a gap in the party that was somebody who knew how to use a gun, and was also the healer. And so once he was dead, he was not only a mechanical portion of the party missing, he was also a character that they grew to love. I made Bennett as interesting as possible, almost nigh on Mary Sue-ish, because when he dies, he needs to be the martyr for the party. You know... I, I, I absolutely would totally say, you know, Ben, it's a Mary Sue. Absolutely. But that was with the purpose of having to axe him off so everybody had a motive to keep going. We already talked about the Peru prologue. Uh, yeah. But that is not enough. It is like a taste, an introduction. If you were to have just gone straight from there to New York, it would have done his character injustice. It really would have. And especially since... Uh, the rewrite made Bennett's, made Jackson, a.k.a. Bennett, so much better. Because uh, in the newest edition, no, yeah, I think because the adventure begins in Harlem, making him a Harlemite makes a whole bunch of sense. I think, it, it it's weird to say, but making him black does add a lot to his character. Because now this isn't just generic white adventure man, you know, like that we see in so many other pulps. Now you have to also consider the fact that, like, it's a truth of the world of the 20s. This is a black man who has figured out how to become a successful anthropological author and travel the world. And that's already says a lot about where did you come from? What was your strife like? What did you go through? Who did you meet? Uh, an adventure in Harlem Unbound also confirms that he's queer, which is, I also think, very much adds more to who he is. It's no longer just this generic person. He's actually, like, generic, you know, white guy. He's now an actual character. 
I don't think that his race or his sexuality alone would add to it, but it forced us to ask questions more about him, who he was, what was he like in this time period. That's what was useful about it. It raises more questions than just, I don't know, he's some affluent white dude. Who gives a fuck? Right. And with that, you did such a good job with including those other campaigns. Because if you wouldn't have done that, it would have been the equivalent of someone from the Armitage Halloween party dying. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Armitage Halloween party. Oh, man. Uh, because nobody at the Armitage Halloween party died. No, nobody actually died. I know, but if one of them did die, oh. and that was Masks of Nyarlathotep, like... Oh, God. No one would care. They would probably feel a little sad about the loss, but there was no connection made that night. And that's partially why I told my players, you know, he's going to die, is so every player, you know, knew I have to know this guy. I'm only going to get so much time with him, and he is so important. It's actually why he starts off the plot by going to Toprak. I think that was such an important thing that he actively seeks out Toprak rather than Toprak stumbling into him. Because it means, I want to give you something in good faith. And that makes players want to trust the guy back in return. Players in general, like any NPC that gives them stuff, so, you know, like, the moment that that connection was made, and that he's telling the story of Peru in a flashback is also important, because, well, we already know that he, like, grows to trust these people. Like, we've narratively established that this must occur. So the other players are kind of willing to give into it. I never think railroading is bad when the players know where it's going. When they have some control. We know where the story must go, but how we get there is in our control. And I think that makes players more inclined to cooperate rather than to resist. Yeah, it gives that in the personalization as well to craft how do I want to bond with this character because I know I'm only going to have this much finite time with them. You know, the relationship between Lewis and Bennett, as well as Clara and Bennett, Toprock and Bennett, and especially the relationship between Charlie and Bennett. Oh, man. I was genuinely worried with Charlie and Bennett that I was going to get, like, grilled for, uh, was it the kill your gaze trope? I didn't mean that, guys. Uh, but no, I, I, I genuinely think, like, I, we, Nagel and I talked about this. We knew going in, we wanted to set that relationship up for tragedy. Uh, like, and, and Nagel played into the, are you sure you want to go alone? And I think that was, like, one of those subtle little moments that just stung. Tragedy, indeed. Because they, it really, again, there was no stopping it. It was, it was, that was the course. And with that, it makes that episode where they come in on his uh, body so much more. It doesn't help that I titled it Bennett Dies. <laughs> That was such it was that was a that was a gut punch. No, no, it, it makes it so much worse because you already know that's what's gonna happen in this episode. Then it dies. <laughs> uh uh and I, I don't mind giving that away. I don't mind tipping that off because it makes the punch even worse because now it's not Oh, I'm surprised, Bennett's dead. It's oh god, when does it happen? Tragedies are much better when we know where it's going. Like, you know, it's... I can't believe I'm saying this. It's a tragedy, but we sing it anyway. 
Or you're just filled with dread. Or just filled with dread and we never let the story resolve. <laughs> that is the beginning yeah. of Masks of Nyarlathotep. The real campaign proper, yeah. Yeah, what do you got for me on New York? I mean, not There's like so many elements that I want to talk to you about. Because for one thing, we don't say that you can hear us like complimenting him on this, you know, during the games, mm -hmm. but you are so good at weaving in actual historical characters and events. Oh, no, no, that's a trademark. Uh, because uh, to me, it was, you know, it's like you're in Harlem in 1925. The Harlem Renaissance doesn't really, really pick up steam until 27, but I can drop a few characters in there, kind of hint at the, uh, at the future to come. Uh, you know, and let alone making up a couple of clubs in there is super easy. Uh, but no, yeah, no, that's always what I love about Call of Cthulhu. I think it was one of the, uh, designers of 7th edition, Mike Mason, who said on his Twitter, the best Call of Cthulhu episodes are like old school Doctor Who. Somewhat educational, actually takes place in history, and genuinely scary. It's a good way to see it. Because, yeah, it feels like... The way you're able to weave it, it is educational entertainment. In the horror genre. Somehow. In the horror genre. It's like, no, no, children, you're not going to get to listen to this. <laughs> with that, I mean, just starting off with New York, with Bennett being murdered as a black man in the 1920s. Yeah. I kind of wish I got to explore more of the systemic racism of the police in this. Yes. I hint at it and I talk about it. I wish I could have gotten to do more with it. Because initially the police were blaming the Adams gang. Yes. Uh, so if the plot went on for longer, and I think a lot of this is because New York went by so fast because they were really on top of it, what I wanted to do was slowly establish that the police think it's the Adams Gang. And the Adams Gang isn't even really a gang. They're just a group of veterans from the First World War. They're, they're Harlem Hellfighters through and through. But the problem is, is that, like, you know, because the cops think it's them and that it's just, you know, the quote-unquote black-on-black crime, uh, that was sort of, you know, going to be the whole investigation. It was going to be, you know, having to slowly piece together that Adams is innocent. They would have to work with an interview with him. They would learn about Madari and all that came with it. But that's the unfortunate thing with that. Uh, I think establishing that the cold of the bloody tongue uh, is not divided on racial lines may, uh, does kind of, I think, may be a wee bit of a cop-out in hindsight. But it's also establishing the fact that it is, personally, I would have liked to maybe have gone back and, like, had, like, an internal dispute within the cult, much of, in the New York chapter, just kind of, like, about how you have, it's a mixed-race cult, but at the same time, you know, like, there's still this attempt at white supremacy maybe going on within there. Not to say that both sides are good in this conflict, they're both definitely evil, but it would have painted more moral grayness into what's going on in New York. because. Uh, I think with this entire campaign, wherever you go, you cannot escape race relations. Like, that is a big part of this campaign, and it's tricky to deal with, uh, especially, it, you know, uh, I think, again, read Chris Spivey's Har Harlem Unbound. I cannot say this enough. I wish I got to run one of the scenarios for it for the Harlem chapter, but it really does address very well how to, you know, run, you know, racial tension in a game. 
Erica Carlisle. Oh, yes. Oh. Erica Carlisle. So here's the thing. Erica is a racist, just a racist bitch, full stop. But the problem, though, is that she is technically correct. Uh, Bane, a.k.a. Maweru, really was a bad influence on him and really was doing that. Erica's mistake was that she didn't take that one step further and also consider Hypatia. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, that's sort of, like, you know, is the whole point of Erica, I think, being incredibly racist is to throw the players off the scent. Because, like, well, this is all racially charged, so we have no way of knowing if this is true or not. And I think that kind of works. I really wish I could just make Erica more of a devil you have to deal with, rather than somebody who has correct information. If anything, I wish I could have skewed the information more. I mean, you partially did, because it's like... Yeah, she had no questioning of Hypatia. And it didn't even cross her mind that they could have been friends. Yeah, no, it did not even begin to cross her mind. Especially if you pressed uh, her about... If, if, the, if they pressed her on, what about Hypatia? Then she would have responded with, Oh yes, he was with that... Oh yes, that nice uh, Kenyan gentleman. And he was with, you know, a white Kenyan, let's be clear. And that would have meant to... And then, you know, like, if you actually kept pressing, you could have eventually figured out, oh, wait a minute, the timelines add up here, that may be more, oh, crap. Like, there was a way to possibly figure out, from the beginning, Hypatia Moweru and uh, Augustus Larkins are all in on it. Yeah, I bet there's, there's no, I cannot see Erica Carlisle asking Larkin. Oh, are you in Moweru friends? She didn't give a shit. She didn't give a shit. In her worldview, a white man and a black woman being friends would be impossible in her mind. Must have been a shock when she realized her brother was dating her. Exactly. Again, we're living in the 1920s where we're already beginning to heavily question like things like, you know, we're already pushing for interracial marriage already. We're already pushing for... LGBT rights have already begun in this era. And we're going to get a huge setback in the 30s to 50s, but for right now in the 20s, we're really getting a lot of challenges to these norms, and unfortunately, you still have a lot of white society that is very much against this. Uh, again, I really wish the campaign kind of really took more time to explore the British Empire's uh, relationship with everyone else. Uh, oh god, we're gonna go into my academic training for a moment here, but... Let's go! Uh, no, no, full stop, England, one of the worst countries ever. Uh, mostly because they claim to be, uh, abolishing slavery during this time period, uh, from 1850 onward. But you know, I know what they're doing? Enslaving people in India. But it's, like, enslaving in quotation marks, where they're really just like, No, we're liberating slaves from the French, but we're return. But, monsieur, we are returning these people back from the Caribbean to India. Like, per their contract. Oh, you're a slave ship shooting you down. Ah, sacre bleu. All right, we have rescued and liberated you. Now, you will work for us and become soldiers as orphans. But we don't want to be soldiers in your army. Too bad! We have liberated you. Do not stop asking questions. With the implementation of Mr. Vaz. Ah, yes. Mr. Vaz. 
my love letter to Hinduism slash my takedown of it as a religion to some extent. Uh, yeah, uh, what do what, what you want to know about where Vaz came from? Because uh... Honestly, yeah, why did you choose to go down that route? So it began with the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, in that story, there is this truly cosmic horror element where a prince asks to see uh, Krishna's real form, and before him, he begins to like get incredibly scared and nervous once he sees that Vishnu is the universe. And to me, having a force to counter Nyarlathotep is an interesting concept. There are no true good guy gods. I don't believe that there are any good gods in the mythos. But I think using a mythos version of Vishnu, who is truly a cosmic horror in his own pantheon, just kind of works. And having Vaz speak in American zeitgeist, I think, was incredibly uh, just a fun challenge for me. Because I wanted to make him seem plausible and just strange. Uh, you know, again, to show that he is the weakest of the gods, he is, of all things, a hobo. Like, he's just a meandering wanderer who can occasionally perform miracles. Uh, let alone just coming up with an idea of, like, putting him in a silver mine to explain why his skin is blue is a nice touch on my end. Again, nobody immediately jumped to, ah, it's Vishnu. <laughs> or, rather, Nagel did, but didn't voice it. <laughs> And then from there, it just kind of began to be read as a dark interpretation of Hinduism, where it's three gods, all sort of aspects of one major deity, who all have a different purpose to do, destroyer, creator, preserver, that sort of thing. You know, it just kind of all flowed from there. In uh, Horror on the Orient Express, the Skinless One is one of the avatars of Nyarlathotep, and in... Uh, the Dreamlands, they go to the Gulf of Nodens, where uh, Henry is, you know, throwing memories into the into the dream. So they were already there to begin with. Vaz just hadn't shown up yet, though. If I do end up running Children of Fear, I can probably say what Vaz was up to in 1923. So back back on the trajectory of how New York went, you vaguely said... They were on top of things. They were, oh god. There was so much more I wanted to do. There was so much more I wanted to do in Harlem. But they were just dead set on, we're going to find this guy, we're going to take him out, and we're going to hurry before they can do anything. Like, once they found that clue, it was over. Uh, and especially because phone books exist. Uh, my fellow keepers, your one greatest enemy is the phone book. Try to find ways to work around it. That episode. It was beautiful and hilarious. I, I had a whole All in one. other scenario in Har that was going to be from Harlem Unbound in which they would go to a film festival that Jackson said he was going to be, or that, that Bennett said he was going to be attending, and they would have gone there, and there would have been some cool things, and they would have gotten to meet an avatar of Azathoth, of all things. But oh. nope, will never happen. We'll never get to see it. This has been a question on my mind. For too long of a time, and I have not voiced it. Why is it called Masks of Nyarlathotep? Ah, I only remember that one mask from Peru. So there's the mask. So it's kind of weird, but the idea is that like Nyarlathotep is described as the god of 999 forms. 
And as part of that, any incarnation Nyarlathotep comes into is a mask. So there's him as the there's him as Augustus. There's him as the as uh, the worm deity from Peru. There's him as the bloody tongue, as the black pharaoh, as the sand bat, as uh, the bloated woman, as Nitocris, as Nyarli, as uh, Nefertiti. You can like. The whole idea is that everywhere you go, there is some mask of Nyarlathotep staring you in the face and keeping an eye on you. That's why it's called that. I see. Yeah, this... That makes it all the more terrifying, because, yeah, it just felt like they were constantly ready to just intercept us. Again, Nyarlathotep's, like, one of the few gods with an actual personality in the mythos. Like, he actually has, like, a sense of humor, if... You could say the Joker has a sense of humor, I guess. You know, I guess that's just Hypatia's type. Really appreciate how you include the events of horror on the Orient Express into Masks of Nyarlathotep. Because you fully could have just made them two different universes, but you were committed to creating this one timeline. I kind of, of knew sorts. at the end of Hoto that I was going to run this. And so I started to plant, like, seeds in there early on that this was going to happen, especially in telling them that, hey, this is only just one of the many cults of Nyarlathotep. The founding of the Trust was a big aspect of that as well. And I think that was sort of, you know, that was important to me because, like, I like the idea of a steady-state world that we can just keep coming back to with, like, more to do. Uh, the mythos is just going to keep cropping up everywhere, and I think it's just going to be fun to go to different places and go on more adventures together. But, you know, uh, this place and Centralia are two distinct realities. So Nagel and I agreed on that going in. I didn't realize this, like, initially, but it seems like the Dreamlands is a bit of a toss-up on whether GMs like to include it or not. Ah, you've been reading on the, on the subreddit, haven't you? <laughs> Um, so, okay. So the Dreamlands is weird because it's kind of Lovecraft's weirdest creation. Because the Dreamlands is kind of antithetical to a lot of what Lovecraft was initially assumed, is assumed to be about. Now, I love them. I think it's a good place to take, to take people to go to different locations. And as I interpret it, it's the next world after this world is done. But I think... For a lot of GMs, going to the Dreamlands is also kind of a cop-out for, like, the horror of things. Now, I run Pulp, so I don't really care if it's 100% scary all the time. That's not really what I'm going for. But I kind of have to acknowledge that, you know, the Dreamlands really increases the Pulp factor of things. And that's just, to me, I think it's the more interesting part of the Lovecraft mythos is going to the Dreamlands. It's such important to Nyarlathotep as well, so. Has he showed up? Is he gonna, like... Oh, oh, no, you can't even Nodens and Nyarlathotep are fighting over the Dreamlands right now. Oh, yes, because Carlisle. Yep. That's a big thing for people who know the Dreamland cycle. Uh, and how I explained in my cosmology is that Nyarlathotep is always eager to go just destroy the next world, and Nodens has to keep him back. That's how I like to think of it anyway. I see. And in terms of Dreamlands, I guess from a listener player's perspective, mechanically it feels like a safety net. 
yeah. of sorts in terms of losing characters or connections with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think multiple times there's been more closure with Bennett being the first time and then being the second time where Clara gives him the ballad of Matilda Price. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, I want to give closure. And I think uh, I'm going to have to talk about this. Okay, so... Uh, first of all, I really do believe that, like, since we're also a podcast, I try to add closure to things. Uh, my players are first, the audience second, in that order. And part of that is I want to offer closure when I can. Some things are just left unresolved, and that just happens, but I want to give closure because it means the story is able to kind of neatly wrap itself up while leaving questions on it. And a big part of that, though, is that I think many COC uh, you know, keepers are going to look at me and go, that's not how I play Call of Cthulhu. Because in the Masked of Nair Lathtep support group, and nothing against these guys, I think they're very bloodthirsty, and I think they're very much trying to think of every way they can to make it hard for the players. Because if I wanted to, I could have just made it super easy to kill all of you at like any point. But that's not what I'm interested in. I want to keep you alive to keep the story going. If some of you die by fate of the dice, you die by fate of the dice. But my goal is not to set out to kill you unless that's what the players want. Like, the battle in Kenya? Totally a possibility where you could die. The battle in England? Possibility where you die. On a side quest by yourself? Fuck no, I'm not gonna go do that. Because I feel like also you do prioritize, again, like this is a a podcast medium. We are all very, I'd say, narrative inclined into building relationships and creating those potential avenues of tragedy um, between different character interactions. Oh, Echo especially. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, Clara. Yeah. Clara, I knew, was going to go mad. Like, I kind of said, you're allowed to... When you hit zero sanity, I'm going to give you incredible powers, and it's going to have to be a hard choice about whether or not you're going to go remove yourself or if the other players are going to have to put you down. Like, it was a genuine consideration we had there if she hit zero in Australia. I'm I'm against it feeling like a cop-out because there still is tragedy in it in the fact that they slowly lose the memories of when they were alive. Oh, yeah. Like, that is, there's going to be a point where if they visit, Bennett's not going to remember them. The only person who even stands a remote chance is probably Charlie, but that's only because he's a child of Noden. So, that's it. That's going to be tragedy in itself. But, but no, uh, Bennett will probably forget everyone eventually, and you'll probably, and so will Clara, so will... Marion, we've already seen that she's kind of gone off the deep end to some extent. Like, she's been able to retain her memory for the most part, but she's already gone power-hungry as she was in life. I'd have to ask Nagel about that, though. Let's... Steer over to Egypt? Yes, steer is the right word. I was personally going to choose vroom vroom, but... For one thing, how you've described... Masks of Nyarlathotep is it doesn't outright say you have to go to different but it heavily says you should yes so 
If there's one thing I do not like about this book, it is the fact that they tell you you can go anywhere, but we've written it assuming that there's a logical order. And to me, I feel like is that there are ways you can work around this. I think China makes a good first location, and I think England makes a good first location. Anything else doesn't really make sense. Because England sets up what you find in Egypt. So if you do those two things in the reverse order, you have no reason to go under the Great Pyramid in Egypt. That's kind of the big thing. Nothing against Nagel or Charlie on this one, but the camp, but the whole thing you're supposed to do in Egypt is stop the cult of the Black Pharaoh. You know, stop the ritual from summoning Nitocris. And I had to push the summoning to England just to give you a fair fighting chance because you would have no clue this ritual even exists unless you went to England first. So that led to the problem. Because if you went under the Great Pyramid, you could have learned all this information and tried to learn to stop it. However, there is no reason for you to go under the Great Pyramid. It has nothing to do with the current mystery. It only happens if you went to England and learned that the Penhue Foundation is up to some shit. Yeah, it was a logical decision by the players that there's no reason to check it. There's no reason to check you know, it. There's like meta, a meta sense, but in terms of role-playing, you know, there's there, no incentive. There is no reason to go. And with the clues you've been given, like, how is Egypt not the first thing you would want to visit? Exactly. Egypt's the first place you'd think to go, but it's not the best place to start. Again, England makes more place to start because you're supposed to think, well, that was the last place Bennett was, and that was where he went mad, and it was the first place where the Carlisles went. Yes. You're supposed to think that that's that. Or you think, well, we know one member of the Carlisle expedition is alive in China, so we should go there. And if you go to China, then Brady can send you on all the other missions you need to do. Mm -hmm. But again... You have to pick one of those two before you can do everything else. And I wish they didn't give you ten clues in the beginning to point you to every location. They, they probably set that up so it gives more of like a... There's so many different avenues to investigate through. And so. payoffs. It's little tokens that pay off when you get there. But because you can go anywhere, narrative flow gets broken. Honestly... If your finale to Masks of Nyarlathotep is not in China, you screwed up because it's a rocket launch. You can't top a rocket launch. You just can't. So me delaying the mystery and going, hey, go solve all these other problems and go to China and come back to China later was hopefully that. There was the possibility you end up going to Grey Dragon Island early on. I, I heavily consider that as a possibility. So I had a plan. Uh, this is one of the fun what-ifs. That if you spotted the rocket early before it was finished, they would have tried to rebuild the rocket somewhere else. Mm. And you would have to figure out where it is. And uh, I was going to have you return to Peru to go find, ah, they're launching the rocket here now. That would have been a cool wraparound to yeah. go back to where, you know, it all started essentially for the group itself. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it would have been a fun way to, like, oh, oh no, they found the finale too early. Uh, we gotta fix this. Um. Yeah, it all it was a little bit, like, you did have to make that addition of, okay, we're gonna go to Shanghai twice. You know? And that's fine. Yeah, it worked out fine. It didn't feel forced. Um, 
Mm. And you set it up in a way where we would get cued, yeah. you know, essentially to return for that finale. Yeah. It's like, well, we have to wait for the cavalry. We're probably going to have to wait for the boat to arrive so we can follow it and figure out where it is. And then that would, you know, sort of lead everybody to just kind of like uh, waiting around. And you're better off going off because who knows how long that ship's going to take. Uh, you know, and, the, you know, timing is flexible. Weird science was very prevalent. Oh, yeah. I mean, Lewis literally invents a Dyson sphere. To me, it's like weird science is like some of the, is like the logical conclusion of like, well, if I find these weird mythos things, I should make something out of them. Yeah, it, it's, it's just an expansion on like in terms of how, you know, there was alchemy before there was chemistry. We've still got players that work with the metaphysical in terms of those dreamlands people like Dingo Dude. Oh, yeah. As well as, you know, more sorcerer types. But then we have Lewis. And then we have Lewis, Old Bundari, uh, was it uh, Lackey and Gilmore? You know, we have like whole, you know, groups of people who are just like futzing with the weird science stuff just to figure that whole thing out. Hell, even Fritz for the limited time we had. I'd even argue if, uh, if Laszlo survived, he would have been a weird science person. For sure. That was just... You know, while we're here, Mal, your drawings, your schematics, the dude even did circuitry for the death ray. Phenomenal. All the gold what? stars. The son of a bitch did. We love to see it. Yeah, he's going to listen to this and he's going to get all teary-eyed. Um, In a good way, I hope. I hope so. If I could give you a gold star physically, I would. All right. Let's see. So back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. Uh, but yeah, no, the pyramid was going to be cool. I had like so many cool traps and puzzles. It was going to be a dungeon crawl. There was going to be like weird, like a uh, Coptic jar people, you know, like a, you know, like the, uh, like you were going to have like people with the heads of hippos and ibises and leopards. And it was going to be awesome. And nope. Nope. Instead, they sent, sent Birdman. Send Birdman. The Grackle. Was he in there? Did you make him up, or okay, was he okay. in there? In the Pulp Cthulhu book, there is a list of NPCs. Now, unfortunately, he's originally called the Raven, and I'm like, eh. mm. Those of you who don't know, the podcast met because we all uh, love this guy, Paul Shapira, and Raven as a word is kind of loaded to all of us, so I had to opt out of that. So it's like, okay, what's like a blackbird that I can use that the cr no crow has a context with Ruwabi, can't do that. Uh got it. Grackles. Nobody will think to use the grackle. It sounds so pulpy. Yeah. Uh the Raven, aka Walter Short. There he is. Okay. But yep, yeah, uh that was uh that was in the Pulp Cthulhu book, so I just pulled him out for this. Phenomenal. Yeah, instead instead he was sent to, I guess, but no, yeah, investigate. It was a logical decision on their end. But the Grackle is also based off of, like, older 1930s pulp superheroes like Dick Tracy or, like, uh, I'm trying to think of, like, others. You know, like, old school Green Hornet or uh, even original Batman comics, like, detective comics era Batman. That kind of thing. Over here, you know what? What happened to him? 
Oh, since uh, he didn't get to show up, like edit this into the actual episode uh, to explain everybody's uh, untimely demise. But uh, the Grackle is continuing to be a superhero in New York. Nobody has figured out his identity yet, and he's still trying. And his and his uh, press agent is still demanding those damn pictures of the Grackle. (laughs) Get me those damn pictures of Spike. I need the Grackle on my desk. (laughs) Going on into England. Ah, yes. Do we want to cover anything that happened in, like, Berlin, Turkey, or Vienna real quick? Honestly, yeah. I was, I was just thinking about the main countries. But no, okay, earlier you are talking about in the 1920s was the beginnings of, like, seeing LGBTQ plus rights. Yes. Berlin, I thought, was an excellent example of that existing at that time. Berlin is the LGBT capital of Europe at this time, and until the Nazis show up, it is absolutely just a liberal metropolis. Like, you could find anyone there. I think it's kind of important that uh, Charlotte, being one of the few truly trans characters I think I've ever portrayed, is never, ever mistaken for the wrong gender. I think that's so important to what happened with Charlotte. And, like, let alone that, like, all characters, she's a woman, no, full stop. I don't even imply she's trans, except very subtly, because you have to realize, oh, that's the place with the transvestite balls, and, uh, ah, okay. I'm gonna use that word only when referring to in context, and I know that's got some, uh, it's not entirely acceptable anymore, but we're gonna use it whenever referring to the 20s event. That was going on. Uh, But yeah, no, I think that was like a big point, let alone how you could find so many, uh, you know, just like, what was it? I think there was like a quote that like from the average Berlin policeman saying, yeah, about one out of five people is homosexual in uh, in Berlin at this point. So yeah, no, no, like Berlin was just an opportunity to kind of really highlight it. Very cool city. Berlin, the Wicked City is such a good book. I wish you could have gotten to run any of the scenarios out of it, but they just didn't fit, so I had to make one up. Yeah, at least you got to d- dive into there for a little bit before they had to keep... Because, again, time was of the essence. Yeah. They investigated that area because Bennett was spotted at one of the balls. Yeah. Oh, and uh, bonus- oh, and real quick, uh, everybody who liked the Berlin episode, watch the 1985 movie Possession. Just watch the 1985 movie Possession. That's where I stole the plot from. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Also, I'm at those of you who like the murder mystery episode, watch the 1955 film, uh, what is it? Uh, The House on Haunted Hill, I believe. Let me make sure that's actually correct. Uh, I believe that's right. No, I I lifted the plots from movies for some original ones, like movies I knew my players had never seen. Yeah, the 1959 film House on Haunted Hill. Uh, The Vincent Price film, it is absolutely where I stole the entire plot from. Anybody who recognized it would be like, ah, yep, it's that movie. That's a big thing you do in preparing for these campaigns is like watching films. Oh, yeah. The time are related to concepts you want to explore. So Master of Nile Athetep, and I think this is very good of them, Every chapter they list films you should watch to, like, help you know the time period. Okay. And that's where I got my list for all the pulp films. I had to look up a couple of others that I need to add to the list for my own personal benefit. Uh, One of the big ones uh, that was a bit of an influence was for the Shanghai chapter. It was... I'm going to remember it. Once Upon a Time in Shanghai, uh, the remake that came out. It is such a good Chinese action film, and it's 
very anti-fascist, which I think is very good. Uh, a rewatch of all the Indiana Jones movies, all the Mummy films, all the, uh, was it, a bunch of other ones like Her and King Solomon's Mines, Congo, like a whole bunch of films that are debatable in quality and level of racism at times, but overall generally good influences are just how not to guides. Uh, I will say... I think pulp cinema is great, but again, you are getting into it, and you do have to go in knowing that there's a lot of problematic elements in it. There just is. Uh, but I think it is an absolutely wonderful time to go into that, and I think another big thing is that, like, uh, the movies I watch really do influence how I GM. Like, in the middle of the whole campaign, I finished all of Twin Peaks, and you can notice that that really influenced my GMing halfway through this campaign. Watching a lot of Lupin the Third affected a lot of my GMing, especially in the way I view uh, the adventure genre to some extent. Like, that really affects how I run games. And with one of those movies you just listed, The Minds of King Solomon, was that a whole side quest that we just did not explore? Yes, it was possible for you to go on a quest to find The Minds of King Solomon, but you didn't do it. If you talked to Art to uh, Neville German, who was like a very minor witness you could have talked to in, uh, in Kenya, we could have had like two whole sessions dedicated to finding the minds of King Solomon and learning about where the white gorillas come from. That, okay, so that's... Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole plot line in this and in Children of Fear where we will be discussing the Yeti. No, yeah, uh, that would have been fun. Yeah, I think we all just took it as this is not related to the central issue. Oh, not at all. It totally wasn't. It was a potential side... red herring. It was a total red herring. But if you went for it, I was like, oh, you're going to be rich at the end of this. <laughs> I mean, there's always after. There's always after. Um, but with back to Egypt and then going to. England before then, Berlin, Vienna. Vienna was a pretty nice little almost catch up with some older campaign ideas, especially with like visiting of Marion. Finally getting to see House Ausberg. I kept dropping that name in Hoto, but nobody would ever pick up on it. <laughs> Finally, House Ausberg was resolved. And in that, you reintroduced some villains oh, yeah. from the initial. Oh, yes. Uh, bringing back uh, the Baron I th th was just so much fun. Like, he is the long-term villain that we all are waiting for. Like, eventually I will think about running just, like, a short five-session campaign dedicated maybe to uh, the Trust in the 1940s and just go, all right, pick any character you want from that's in the lineup and we're going to go fight the Nazis. And, like, just have the Baron stealing valuable artifacts from across the world, and, like, just, we have to figure out what his grand plot is. Like, I want him to be, like, the mini-boss you dismiss, and then eventually he becomes the final boss. Plus, it's just super fun to be a punching bag Nazi. It's just super Cathartic. Uh, th this is gonna be clipped out of context, just watch. Nazis are great bad guys. They're great bad guys. And with the auction, again, 
I think it was great to reintroduce some characters, especially if your listeners did not listen to Horror on the Orient Express. Um, as well as, I feel like for the players, that must have been really fun to prepare for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. Just like giving them that auction booklet and making them think about, well, what do we want to do now? Is What do we want to bid on? What do we want to get? Was such a cool thing. So many options. I, I remember seeing... Um, in, like, one of the, the chat channels, like, talking back and forth on what to buy. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was so much fun. Are there any big, I guess, plot points or events that would have happened if they purchased differently? Not that I really wouldn't think of. Again, I would have to kind of, like, see what items they purchased to maybe think on it a bit more. But uh, uh, there was something called the Huntsman Organization that might have gotten involved at some point if they went for it. But we never got to really explore that plot because Nagel had to drop afterwards. Uh, and just so the people at the podcast, uh, people listening know, Nagel just dropped because they weren't as engaged with the plot as they used to and they just needed time off. Nothing between us. No, no nothing. I just want to make sure that that's on the record. And I think you wrote Charlie. Charlie wasn't written out, essentially, but it's just the character was put in a standby position. In, in case Nagel ever wanted to come back. That was the point of that, really. But yeah, there have been multiple times where it's like, you, like occasionally, you know, we saw this with Mal towards the end um, in terms of just availability. Uh, yeah. I feel like you did a pretty good job in just kind of pausing or, or filling in essentially a few times with Mal in terms of having all the availabilities match to keep the story going. Especially taking the time to record uh, Reign of Terror to, uh, you know, fill up uh, the time slots. You know, that helped a lot. So on to England? Yeah, on to England. I guess since we already talked about the baton tossing, essentially. So England is where the conspiracy's light really begins. You're supposed to kind of think, oh, hey, there's this shipping ring that's going to all over the world. We should look into this more. Like, that's supposed to be the plot hook is, ah, the Penhue Foundation is up to some shit. But again, you know, you didn't go there first, so you had to, like, backtrack your way to figure it out. Yeah. And uh, internal cult politics were going to be a big thing about this whole thing. Was the worker program from England to Egypt, or Egypt to England in this case, that was within the original campaign as well? Yes, that was in the original campaign. So were they initially going to meet Zara Shafiq in Egypt then? So, so Zara was sent from Egypt to England. Okay. She's native Egyptian, she goes to England, and she was going to help do uh, some rites... However, you know, there's also an internal structure debate where it's like we would prefer if a native Egyptian was in charge of the cult and not this other guy, get rid of him. And so there was going to be internal cult politics as to who to work with. And that's why Zara was always going to be willing to work with you guys if it means getting rid of him so that she becomes in charge. And she's more powerful, so you're really playing yourself doing this. We played ourselves. We did. Now, Zara was not initially going to be Nitocris, but given the way Egypt panned out, it made sense to go for it. Okay. Okay, I see. Because, yeah, initially when you talked about having to switch that up, I was like, oh, maybe Zara was just going to be Nitocris in Egypt. But, okay, so you, you made that change. Yeah. Who would have been Nitocris if it weren't for 
Lazar. One of the members of the Clive expedition. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you wish we interacted with the Clive expedition? Yeah, I, I really or... wish you did back in Egypt because there would have been like so much more you could have learned. It's like, oh, hey, there's weird happenings going on under the pyramid. You should go check this out. But again, one track mind. <laughs> It was just a very brief interaction with them and stealing of a necklace, yeah. if I remember. Uh, bringing you in and also splitting the group up into doing one-on-one sped up England. So it sped up England very quickly. Like, England has so many sidetrack scenarios. But splitting you all up and giving you all clues about each one was, I think, probably the best move I did this whole campaign. Okay. Like, I think that was my best work was doing a one-on-one for each of you and then doing the England finale. That went so well. And like, yeah, it, it was, we all got different information. And then that, at the two starving Knowles information synthesis. Oh, yeah. Do you think that went well from like your perspective? Oh, absolutely. That was probably like the best we've ever had of everyone working together. Zach was super clever during their session, which I think was during his session, which was just so clever with Toprock. Uh, I think, you know, you meeting Zara and, like, both of you meeting Zara to set up that O-Link, and then it's like, well, we have to trust her then. (laughs) Again! We have to trust her! I gave you the business card, but you didn't bother to look. We both had our suspicions. But yet, I think what really hit us was the fact that I listened to everyone's except for Zach's, and Zach... I don't know if he listened to everyone. Zach doesn't listen. But yeah, Zach didn't listen to, to my session. So like, I feel like there was a potential that if we learned about Zara's interactions via the other person, mm-hmm. there was a chance we could have created more suspicion and actually brought it up and investigated. But, you know, realistically, you know, that would have been a metagame almost suspicion. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that if you two kept talking you might have reached that conclusion okay that to me is like i don't think it had anything to do with like a meta perspective i think it's just like if the two if of you, more information was given that night on how kept she acted about your session if okay you kept talking you could have eventually figured it out yeah we didn't even yeah so yeah toprak didn't even talk about the worker program yeah which uh let's see here also uh yeah toprak selling out his country Dobrak sold out his country, the fucking colonialist swine. Um, it's for the greater good. None is not going to be too happy about that. Oh, uh, wait till the 40s. Um, but with Zara, that, I think, with everyone, that point during, you know, the finale, where we also saw her grab things, None of us questioned it. We were like, oh, she's just helping out. And the fact that the the summoning passed when it was only... A 33% chance of success. Everything just aligned so perfectly to feel like the worst and most obvious and just most pungent betrayal at that point. I, I want to make it clear to the audience at home. I could have rolled behind the screen and just said it passed. I rolled in the open, and then I genuinely told them there was a 33% chance and explained how. This was not me planning that that event would occur. This was pure luck that that entire event happened. 
if you got the last artifact before then, there was no chance the ritual could have occurred. But it worked. It was enough. Now, that idea is not written in the mechanics. To me, I looked, it was from the support group that said every artifact, let's say 33% chance increase that Nitocris has summoned. And that one little thing just kept haunting you, and I felt like that was like, that is why you should be curious. That's why you should have investigated Egypt. That's like the big, oh, Rita fucked it. That event ignited something i'd i'd say mid campaign that the us as players needed as well as his characters now it's personal <laughs> and i think nightopers just served as a great foil for all of you she's dead for now but nothing stops her from coming and again uh, I know I'm flashing forward, but that bit in Shanghai where I just get to mock you as uh, Nitocris was so cruel. I maintained my composure. Or Edith did. I know, but I just loved being so cruel in that whole thing. Everybody's solo sessions were great, though. I freaking love those. Like, uh, I think Mal's was particularly fun doing uh, the 19th hole. Uh, we really got to know Preheat doing that. Uh, it was doing... Uh, Clara's that was particularly good, bringing back Uncle Douglas from the backstory that she wrote. Yeah, that was cute. Or, uh, getting to see you in, the the Shipley house, or... Ah, uh, yeah, and of course, uh, Zach's scouting mission, which, again, I just loved all of those little stories that came out of each of the freaking crits on a luck check. Um, they were all so fun. Um, and also I think they served to kind of do a check-in individually of each player to that point in this story because you could argue how they were in peru is vastly different than how they operate in 1925 on to on to china round one mm-hmm. so i think china was one of the more straightforward chapters i think we're getting to the point where we're getting like all the we got to get this stuff done chapters which uh the the second half feels radically different to the first i'd say because now there's like an actual urgency in the players about this. Now like now you see like what happens if you fail. The summoning of Nyctocris was the first time they really failed. Yeah. So far in the campaign. Like that was the first true failure and it showed that there were consequences for this and that it had to be dealt with. Otherwise, we're boned. And that was the big part of it in my mind. Like that was like the moment the sea chain was we have to focus on the task and get stuff done. And China was when you started to have the tide turn. Like, you started to actually be able to pick up from uh, the failure. Finding Jack Brady was critical, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, to being on a trajectory to understanding where to go from there and more of the grand scheme. There was still the huge cloud on the Hypatia Moeru Larkin situation at the time. But the information he gave us in Shanghai about what had happened to Carlisle and the fact that Carlisle was still alive but insane. No, yeah. Like, that was the big point. And I think Brady is where you finally get answers. The mystery is solved, but now we have to actually solve the problem. We can answer a couple of more questions down the road, but. That's basically it. And I think 
you know, taking the time in China to kind of get a feel for, like, what's happening, where the conspiracy is, what's up with the rocket, perhaps. That really, really went a long way, I think. Did you ever worry that the Brady scene would be too much of an info dump? I did. Uh, the handout itself is already, like, the longest mm-hmm. one in the entire mm-hmm. game. Three pages of just at wall-to-wall text. But you having to talk to him worked a lot better. And I think even going to Roger in Hong Kong to get more information out of him by showing him stuff was a cool puzzle. Yeah, because you did not give us information freely with Carl. We had to really think mm-hmm. on things to show. Like, what would it trigger me? Uh, once again, that is another moment where Twin Peaks was influencing my GMing, because, uh, spoilers for season three, but I'll be vague. A character is not what they used to be, and can only speak in, like, simple sentences, and when prompted, and only really parrots phrases. Uh, you might hear Echo and I say things like, as we both watched it around the same time, of, Jane give two rides. Hello, and uh, call for help. Are you know? It's just this character parroting things, and like he doesn't really know what's going on. So you have to reawaken memories in him. Which that was a puzzle that we haven't really dealt with so far in the campaign. No, yeah, especially since like any answer you get out of him tells you a lot, and Carlisle alone is, uh, is truly a tragic character. Like you know. In very interesting ways, like just because of the fact that, like, it's blind arrogance, it's desires for love and belonging, it's it's just the fact that Carlisle just wanted to actually be worth something. In his backstory, I believe you recall, he was rejected from every Ivy League there was, and like he got expelled from all of them. And that's coming, like, they got expelled from Miss, he got expelled from Miskatonic, like. You have to be some level of deranged to get expelled from Miskatonic, of all things. Was it just because he was troubled, or...? I think it was because he was troubled. I think he had, like, this adventure lust, like, uh, this, uh... What's the word? What's the word? Uh, I've used this... He had this big sense of ennui. Like, this big desire to just, like, do something cool and adventurous. I think a lot of it, and I don't really think I got a chance to explore it, but thinking on it more, it's the fact that Brady got to do all the cool adventures. It's the fact that his best friend and bodyguard, you know, he served in the First World War, and that was a big aspect of his life, and his character was going on all these adventures and doing all these cool things. And while, uh... And while Carlisle is very much this bold adventurer, like, wants to be a bold adventurer type, is an absolute playboy, he just cannot, for the life of him, actually succeed at something. He can't focus and concentrate. And that's what gets him. That's what gets him to kind of, like, when he's given promises and visions of Egypt, he just uses all the money he has and the fortune to just go on this adventure. Damn the consequences. He just wants to do something. It feels like a sign. It's definite because he was targeted. And he didn't even realize at the time because of that arrogance. 
I'll leave it on. I'll leave it censored for now because it's a very yeah. We're not going to mention it here. What happened w- between Roger and Ipatia is a big part of this. I feel like it's never. It wasn't explored enough. Like Hypatia, Augustus, and Beware all being connected is my idea. Because in the book, it just mentions that, oh, Augustus is a victim of Moeru. Like, that's all you get. It's not much. Though, fun fact, if you did investigate Augustus, you could have learned that he had a tattoo of the bloody tongue on his chest. Oh, damn. They missed that. But you could have learned that 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 was like, oh, that's weird. With that, though, it makes more sense to me if Hypatia wants revenge. Uh, In the play I wrote, that's going to be up on the website hopefully very soon. It's Hypatia meets Augustus and they fall in love because Hypatia, for once in her life, is promised by somebody a chance at power, a chance at seeing the world, a chance at actually having control. And that desire for control and agency, something that society deprived her of, is finally granted to her but with a monkey's paw attached. Nyarlathotep is the granter of wishes, but they all have twists and vile mockeries attached to them. Be pharaoh of the world for a few days until I destroy it. Have all the knowledge and power in the world, but only in the minds of others. Finally get back at Roger and be in control of your life, but sacrifice yourself to me. The only person who doesn't get a monkey's paws wish is Moeru, but that's because she was at birth raised to be his priestess. And, of course, Brady, who didn't wish for anything. There's uh, one more thing I need to mention. What was Roger's wish? Because Roger Carlyle, what he wanted was to be with Moeru and be happy. That was the, um, under one of the pyramids of the little yeah. the circles. It was, like, him happy with Moeru. I remember that. That's what he wished for, but he never got it because Moeru was using him for greater ends. Did they love each other? I don't know. But I think Moeru was definitely still viewing Roger as a tool to complete her mission. I don't even think Moeru got to choose what she is. She just knew that this was her life and that this is the thing she has to do. It was ingrained in her. That was her worldview. I, I think it's very important that like the original kind of paints Moeru the only person of color in the entire original module as the villain. And I'm like, no, no. No, there was a joke Nagel had that if it's a Call of Cthulhu module and there's a woman in it, she is evil or pretty, and or both. And I've been desperately trying to fight back on that. That's why I try to feature so many other you know women throughout this who are of any sort of ethnic minority. Uh, but it's you know important that like I think I kind of emphasize, but where did not choose this. This was her place in it, and that not all African tribes are evil. Which, that was fun. But I had to paint that Moeru came from a tribe that everyone else was like, these people are fucked. Um, There was also, oh man, I forgot to mention this. In the New York chapter, there was going to be an attempt to plant something called the Knights of the Ouroboros, which was a secret organization going back to Africa. All the, like all the way back then, that was a mythos fighting organization whose sole purpose was we were a collective of tribes back in like the beginning of the dawns of time, and we have stayed true to the cause ever since to fight back the mythos. It would have been awesome. 
internally and just screaming all women in Call of Cthulhu are evil. I think it comes from the age of the 80s when it was written by a bunch of young, frustrated men, but... It's a trope. It's an unfortunate trope. That's why I really try to get to emphasize, like, you know, they're all evil. Mm-hmm. I think a fair point to always point out, and I try to make this a big part of this, is the reason why often I think we have this thing about women seeking power or evil is because, well, it's the 1920s. We've only just gained in America the right for women to vote. And I think it's an important thing that. You know, women want agency. They want autonomy in this time period. But to do that requires going into nefarious means. It's why some of the most powerful women in history, I forget her name, unfortunately, but in Harlem, you know, she had to lead a gang or to, like, get in charge. Nash from the future here. I'm referring to Stephanie St. Clair. This was around uh, the 1930s, not the 20s, like I seem to have implied. She was responsible for running Harlem's numbers game and was very important in how, uh, you know, illegal gambling really benefited Harlem and kept uh, the black community afloat and provided opportunity at times. This is a longer story, and I'm not an expert on this, so I do recommend uh, just following up on that. All right, back to the back to the uh, postmortem. Back on the twist around on questioning. I mean, I think it was obvious that Carlisle loved Mawera to an extent, or was infatuated with her, at least. Again, we can't get into his psyche, but, like, I assume that he just fell for her, or she just knew from Hypatia, from dating, you know, prior, the way to act um, to make him fall for her. Oh, yeah. But with that, so from what I understood from our conversation that we had with Old Vindari, was that Hypatia was genuine genuinely in love with Nyra Lapitep. Was yeah. that true? Yes. Okay. I think she would tell you she's in love with Augustus, but that is not who she fell in love with. Because it's the stammer that's the tell, right? The stammer is actually Augustus. If there is no stammer, it's Nyra Lapitep speaking. And I think she genuinely fell in love with the promise Nyra Lapitep offered. That there was something genuinely attractive about the promises he made of the sweet nothings he whispers. I think that was the point I really wanted to kind of hit upon. It's like, no, no, she genuinely is in love. It's just, she's being used. Kenya was very visceral in terms of realizing these additional ones. Because Shanghai was all about confirming kind of what had happened to the expedition as a whole. There was still up in the air about how Hypatia was connected to all of it. And it even kind of gave us that suspicion that, oh, something happened to Hypatia, like she was a victim, essentially. Oh, yeah. But then when you come to Kenya, it's another almost sense of an info dump. But one you see. But one that, yeah, you see, and in the moment when we did, when we had that scene, you know, there was a lot of shock. I mean, Edith was... Yeah, uh, that image I sent is, again, I think as graphic as Call of Cthulhu can get. Uh, I'm a bit surprised Mask of Nair Lafitte, like, in more recent modules, they've been doing, like, adult advisory warnings on these for, like, these are very mature scenarios, but Masks especially should be getting for the themes it deals with in Ken. The info dump from Old Mandari is different in... 
emotion I'd say to Brady's because Brady's was almost factual. It kind of supported what our suspicions were already. Old Mandari, that was kind of out of the blue. That's when we learned about the connections between Augustus and Oweru and Hypatia. And it added another sense of, oh shit. Yeah. And that whole birthing ritual. It, it's body horror, you know? And I vaguely hinted at this in Berlin, actually, of all places. Because if you recall, uh, again, I based it off of the 1985 movie Possession. But in that movie, somebody creates a creature to be a new lover for them when a relationship is falling apart. And doing this again in Kenya, you know, like you should draw parallels between those two. But the other big thing was, you know, I also established it's possible to fall in love with Dyer Lapitan. Like that was another big point I kind of hit upon. And the final big nail in the coffin with that was pointing out that she is sacrificing herself to get Augustus back. Except it's not that. It's Nyarlathotep, and it will be in the bestial form of the bloody tongue. And she doesn't know that going in. She just thinks, oh, I'll be able to bring him back. Damn the consequences. Damn the pain that must have been dealing to her. Imagine child-rearing times ten. Um, mm. That was a tough, that was a tough battle. Uh, yeah. Just emotionally tough, not even combat-wise. What also made Kenya very pungent was the fact that's when we finally met Moweru mm -hmm. and battled with her as well. Who had always been established as like, oh, yes, the villain. Mm -hmm. You know, they made it very clear since the beginning, you know, of the campaign. And then teamed up with someone who, until that time, had been, had been seen as the most innocent, you know, or maybe being held hostage. So that created a bit of a counter in itself that these were the masterminds, you know? Yeah. So learning that Hypatia was really behind most of it is, I think, you know, truly a twist in a way that makes logical sense. Like, you could see it coming if you looked for it. But, again, you had to really think that, like, you had to go against the narrative that Hypatia was pitched under. And I think even in the original book, like, this is mostly my tampering, I think Hypatia as written is much less in control and is more of a victim. To me, I'm more interested in Hypatia as this person scorned by a former lover. And uh, I think it's very important that, like, you really... I know it's weird, but I, again, I say, it should dawn on you. So wait, why is she coming along if they're exes? And again, exes can be friends, but it's also... You should at least... That should raise a question mark. That seems odd, especially given the scandal that New York is known for with its socialites. So why are they still together? And that should have started raising alarms. That really should have been the moment you started going, hmm, something's not right with Hypatia. 
then once Kenya had concluded, there was a sense of, I don't want to say emptiness, but just a heaviness Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, Edith killed someone who she had thought was innocent until a certain point. Clara had lost a good amount of sanity. The whole now if we use luck between Edith and Toprock. Yep. That was It was a good plot point. And that by the way, that unholy water was a me was a was, a, was an original. I was like, oh that'll be fun. That was fun. Like it's like it'll remove the effects of the evil eye, but <laughs> I'll that was trade you off for a worse twist. mechanic. Because it was the end of the campaign. You know, some people like to store up their luck, and then you put almost a lock on it. It's like, okay, but now if you use it, my tote receives everything. The, the person that emotionally we detested the most at that point as well. Mm. And again, making it feel like, oh, we messed up, and also just... Why is she one step ahead of us every damn time? I mean, she doesn't need you to spend luck. It's just fun that she's just having her fun with it. The fact that you're smiling when you're saying that is just reminding me of, like, as an Itokris when you were teasing us in Shanghai Part 2. Oh, yes. <laughs> Before we get to the finale, do we want to backtrack to Australia? A hundred percent. Because let's actually backtrack all the way to the end of Shanghai when we went to go visit Carlisle in the uh, asylum. So that was after the chase. Yep. Which means at that point, Kekak Attack was in Lewis. Lewis. Do you want me to talk about everything I told Mal about this? Because I can go into that. Please. Okay. So, first of all, in the episode, you can actually listen to the conversation Mal and I had where we talked about this. I put it after the uh, sign-off, so if you didn't want to spoil yourself, you didn't have to. But I wanted to kind of, like, give you the opportunity to hear what that conversation was. Now, on the other hand, though, when I sent Mal this information, it was uh, particularly... Let me see if I can actually find it. Uh, scrolling through all right, there we go. So, the conversation. I said, I told Mal to act weirdly logical. Uh, let's see. I told Mal to never lower sanity, even when I, but pretend to roll for it anyway. I told Mal... All things you learn as Kakakatak will transfer to Lewis at the end of this. Uh, let's see. Don't be too pushy and give it away. You need to go to the deserts of Australia. Your job is to force the party to go there, no matter what. Because there's really no motivation to go to the city beneath the deserts until like you figure out something's going on. So having uh, Lewis become Kakakatak was the best way to do this. I was always planning on making Lewis Kakakatak, but when he passed out, it was the perfect opportunity <laughs> to do the switch. Yeah, and we were, we knew something was up. Oh, yeah. But we didn't know that it was a body-switching situation. And with that, that makes the visit to Carlisle even more funny, because, you know, with it being 
like the middle of Australia right now at the time that episodes are airing. I recently just listened to like that interaction. And the fact that Lewis goes knew some and you say knew someone, that's some damn foreshadowing. Oh, 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 yes. Uh, I didn't even plan on that. That just happened. I was like, this is a good one. I'm going to keep that. It's so strange. No, that ro- I, okay, I didn't think this at the time, but now I genuinely have to believe Roger could see. Oh, that's a Yithian. Um, <laughs> that that would have been. Oh, my God. That, yeah. But he's like too insane, so we can't say anything about it. I also did tell uh, Mal to read The Shadow Out of Time in full, just so he knew everything going into this. Let's see. And yeah, that was. It's so interesting to rehear it now, because now it feels obvious in hindsight. Like, no, he no. was making such logical decisions at times, mm-hmm. or just feeling like almost a cold, rational sense. But it's also the fact that all our characters were under stress because of this timeline of needing to stop things. We weren't questioning it, you know? Like, maybe he's just acting different under pressure for whatever the thing that happened that we didn't know about. So it was just... This was great. I I also said what her priority list was. Priority one, get off of Earth, return to safety. Two, prevent the events that triggered the end of the race. That triggered the end of the Great Race of Yet. Three, minimize interference with Earth. You are a researcher. Like, Kakatak's whole thing is an observer. She's not supposed to interfere. But because she was trapped, she needs to find a way to get out. And that's not in the book. Like, Yithian mind swaps are a thing. I don't know why the book does not suggest you do this. I was like, going into this, Australia is such a boring chapter without the Yithian mind swap. Because then there's nothing interesting for the players to do. There's a reason why Australia was originally cut from, like, from the 1985 version. Mm, okay. But, like, adding the Yithian subplot makes Australia much more interesting when you have this one player just obsessed with getting to the desert. Yeah, it was. They felt like that was the plot of Australia, was yeah. the Yithian swap that we didn't even know about until halfway through. Mm-hmm. But because Mal is my insider, I can just keep saying things and keep, like, keep the plot going. Uh, it was so much fun. And yeah, and that just adds to, like, the overall sphere of this universe and also the, you know, universe-wide catastrophe of stopping this apocalypse. And the fact that Houston was just entrapping Yithians down in Australia... Yeah, no, stealing the technology, which was vital to the rocket research. Mm-hmm. And then going back again to pre-Shanghai, or no, post-Shanghai with the, the asylum. But I can't, like, every time I think about gather round when Toprock says it when he gets that package, mm-hmm. and then it's a bomb. That was, on, that was off the cuff. It was so much fun just going... Hey, this scene's kind of boring. Have a package. <laughs> no, it was just so brilliant. Because again, it was like an example of none of us questioned it. None of you keep questioning anything. <laughs> you question everything. And that we will. Again, when I do it again, it's just like, okay, this time you've learned from your mistake, right? I still think it's absolutely funny just to be. I also get to reference a really bad movie I don't like, but love to hate. 
Like, just like going, ah, give him the old Shanghai surprise. Oh, my. <laughs> okay, uh, those of you who don't know, Shanghai Surprise is a terrible, terrible movie starring Sean Penn and Madonna. It's like a 1940s World War II action flick set in Shanghai involving drug smuggling, and it's incredibly racist, really bad, bad movie. The only redeeming factor is that George Harrison did the soundtrack, and even then... Uh... Yeah, uh, yeah, there's that. <laughs> Back to Australia. Back to Australia. Back to... No, no, mention it. Let them, let them know before. They must know. Let them know to prevent that. But with Australia, I still also find it super funny that, like, we did not question at the time. Like, part of that was because I was so specific with names and facts that how you pronounced it, Huston. Yeah. Houston. Huston. Yeah. Houston. Yeah. None of us. None of us question that as it not just being houston mm -hmm. did you do that on purpose oh yeah the houston pronunciation yes yeah that's just because it was like houston's not that common of a name in australia it was just kind of fun to have his accent show up and like butcher the name and somehow that just completely was the perfect amount of i have butchered the name just enough to throw you off scent and it wasn't even that much yeah but yet it was. Oh, no, yeah, because, like, it's so easy. I think GMs tend to think that, like, oh, this puzzle is so simple, and then it's like, oh, never mind. When the players are in the zone, sometimes we are not questioning Again, we are not questioning it. You have to question <laughs> everything. Australia very much was building up to that Yithian kind of heist in a way. Like, mm -hmm. get, get her... Let alone the showdown, the collective unconscious, or Toprox adventures in his brain. Oh my gosh, that showdown. Like, that, that to me made Huston, like, the second most, I hate this character, you know? Zara's at the top. Yeah. But, but Houston was incredibly fun. I, I wish I got, like, kind of time to develop Penhue a bit more, but you didn't do the stealth mission, so I couldn't, like, actually, like, build up his character a bit. Then again... Just the fact that he knew the Cthulhu grip is such a terrifying spell. Mm. Just takes it. Just takes away your. Uh, it just it just takes away your strength score. That's all that spell does. But with that showdown, it was that took you know my character specifically for a spin because we had to roll willpower all the damn time. Oh yes. Her lowest stat. This is your mind. Well, uh, deliberately removing Toprock as part of the story, where it's like, oh no, I know he's your most powerful ally. He's out of here. You don't get him. You get to summon one other person to help you. And then Mal, then Lewis chooses Vaz, and he's like, it's not really much I can do. <laughs> I can play some cool music. That's the encouragement we needed. The fact that we were flat, like, fighting the father of Bats and Toprock was just passed out. We just passed it out. You're firing guns. Well, I mean, well, Arabian Nights fantasy. In his mind. Yeah. 
So was that was that your plan uh, going in to have that at some point, or was that like a part of the moment? Because I wanted the father of bats to be a fun like little chase scene at the very end. You did manage to kill the entire cult, but uh, I wanted there to be like a really fun like little last minute like let's have a fight to the death. Let's have we have this plane. We have the father of bats. Let's just have a dog fight. Like no reason not to. It's just epic. And I feel like that's part of it. I feel like that's like, you know, uh, because I'm running it pulp and not for horror in its traditional sense, it makes masks more about big set-piece showdowns and big old fights in the, at the end of each chapter. And I don't mind that. I, I think, again, there's this tendency amongst keepers to want to be lethal and deadly and scary and live up to the Dark Souls of RPGs mentality, but... I think that's not necessary. I think it's about the story we tell and that there are prices to be paid for saving the world, but it is still worth saving. I, I really do think that the mythos, even though you're... It really can be solved with, like, nihilistic thinking of, well, the world is pointless and we're all gonna die, best to live it up and do what we can to fight off the, the end of the world. To me, sanity really does is really a misnomer for what the stat represents. To me, it's despair. Like, that really is a big part of it. How much have you given up on the world? Hope. Yeah. It's a powerful thing, my dudes. Since we mentioned it a little bit, in terms of the character of Penhue, I know we didn't touch on him much. Behind the scenes, the theorizing about the Pharaoh wish and the oh, yeah. immortality of it, that was... We kind of caught that. He's pretty. forever young. He is delusions of grandeur. He's always wanted to be an Egyptian Pharaoh. That's why he went dark into Egyptology. And the real thing is that he was just going to be an incredibly arrogant jerk. No redeeming factors. He's just arrogant. <laughs> In terms of ranking between... Houston and Penhue, who do you think was the stronger adversary? Because we barely touched Penhue. I think if you faced Penhue without an army, uh, he would have been much, much more deadly. He also would have been absolutely vile, but also because Toprock has that one spell and I forgot to give Penhue counterspell, so... Uh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> but, no... Penhue is truly powerful. His stats are basically all reaching 100. Like, his characteristics are all reaching 100. His spell casting is incredibly powerful. But Nyarlathotep's monkey paws wish with this is that, all right, you'll be pharaoh of the earth, the greatest ruler to ever live, the greatest human ever, in the last five or so days it exists. With that wish being associated with Penhue, I don't know, did you want to frame, if you had more time, were you going to frame it to talk a little bit more about, like, British colonialization? Yeah, I was so going to talk about this. I would have had a monologue about how his, about how, you know, he is one of the greatest empires in the world, and how he sees it beginning to wane after the First World War, and how he will not let, you know, his rightful Britannia for crown and for country, and that he should be the rightful king of the world with England on top. Like, I feel like that's a big part of his character. Uh, 
to me, again, we're really in this moment in history right now where we're really looking at archaeology and going, we have stolen these artifacts from these places that they belong to. I think there is, by personal politics, that there is a way to have artifacts from other nations be in your museum. But, you know, it's touring. You give it back eventually. Uh, that needs to be part of the promise, I think. And to have an archaeologist sort of be a dark reflection of Toprock would have been the goal. What Toprock could become if he does not keep in mind what he did. Like, he sold out his nation to England. A statement of, you're not so different, you and I, would have probably come up at some point if we really had the time to develop him more. Both hunger for power, both archaeologists who appreciate history and steal artifacts from where they don't belong. Gosh, that would have been a fun foil situation to explore. And again, we did not get to explore it too much because we only, we knew Penhue as kind of the, you know, big enemy in terms of Jack Brady because they were both in Shanghai together fighting on opposite sides. But when it came to the finale, barely anything, like the main interaction was essentially him just doing that summoning to turn Nitocris into the bloated woman. I wanted you to also kind of figure out that he was going, and she will be my queen, and we will marry each other, and it will all be... I didn't... What? Oh, yeah, no. I was going to eventually, like, uh, have that be a plot line. Okay. That was, like, that, uh, that this was his queen for the, for, the, for the world. Oh, man, I... Again, for the five days, he would have, like, control of her. For the five days, he could t call Nitocris my queen. Yeah. It was going to be really weird and creepy because she's, like, infinitely old and but in an 18-year-old's body or something, and he's, like, 20, but he's secretly 55. It's Wouldn't you just see him as, like, Gaffigan? Probably. Because, like, Gaffigan was working under Penhue. Mm -hmm. He probably took big inspiration from that man's ideals. Remember, it's not, uh, it's not Nitocris. It's, uh, or rather, it's Nitocris. It's not Zara yeah. in there. Just using Zara as an alias. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Zara just completely gave up herself for that purpose. I wish I could have done more with the finale, but I'm happy with what I got. And you know what? It still worked out incredibly well. Like, off the... In terms of, like, the, the planning and the combat, like, do you feel like you rushed the I finale? I feel like I rushed a bit. I feel like I rushed. But overall, I feel fine. Maybe I could have taken a little bit more time with Penhue. Maybe I could have really ratcheted up a bit. But I think we got what we needed. And I think the death of Edith definitely kind of made me want to go, okay, I think we've had a dramatic enough beat. We should start rapping. Because to me, it's like the death of Edith. That's like, that's this is where the denouement begins. We have to move from here. Because it was a dramatic enough moment to start rapping. I kind of wish there was more build up to Edith's death. That's really what I was kind of more time to build that. Yeah. I thought we were going to have more interactions in terms of the rocket switcheroo. I thought so as well, but that's also because I failed to get Penhue to want begin the countdown. That was the big thing, was I needed Penhue to begin the countdown, but he didn't get the chance because on Toprock's turn, dead. 
Uh, and, you know, that's just kind of on me not pre-planning well enough, I think. I think I could have done a bit more. I think I could have uh, really pushed that final combat. I have... But again, I think we got a good finale nonetheless. I still think I wouldn't redo it. I wish I could have done more, but I wouldn't redo it. It's better than the horror on the Orient Express finale, I'll say that, because at least I don't have a changeling I have to deal with. Uh, that was difficult. And with the finale, I guess... I don't know if you you chose to do it this way because of the pulp undertones, but it just felt so epic that it's like all the friends that you've made throughout this globe-trotting campaign oh, yeah. are here all in these. Shanghai to oh. stop the rocket. Yeah, no, because like, okay, so uh, I kind of wanted to talk about this, and I think this is the good time to do it. A big theme of the campaign is highlighted by the first song I play in episode one. Uh, it's After You've Gone, it's a 1920s breakup song. But the more I think on it, the more I realize how much of a theme of the campaign it's been. Uh, how much of the story is what happens after you've gone away. After a character dies, after a character leaves the party, after a character, after somebody disappears. Like, that is a big theme of the campaign. And I think it ending with a giant army of friends in Shanghai is kind of the conclusion of, well, what happened after Bennett died? A whole army came to his end. And that's the one thing you have against the nihilistic darkness of the mythos. What happens after you've gone? And I think that's a big theme of the whole campaign, was that. It's why in, and I haven't released the episode yet at time of recording, but it's why in episode 25, I'm going to, or the final episode, I am going to play that song as the opening number again. It's a meditation, an invite. After you've gone, my love for you will drive me to ruin. Mm. Yeah. Ah. Mm. Oh. Yeah, that can hit for a multitude of characters. Jack Malone and Clara, for instance. God, we knew going into this would either be a tragedy or... And I think... I've gotten the letters that Clara wrote to Jack now into the trust, and when I put them into the episode, it's going to be really hard. Like, the final episode will hit much harder when I have time as Vitus to kind of tell you what's up with everyone else before we get to your characters' finales and the tea party at the end of the universe. Which, uh, we could talk about that soon enough. Um, because I planned the tea party session one. Before we dive into that, in terms of the development of the relationship between Jack Malone and Clara, Jack Malone, for I guess listeners that aren't too familiar, that was influenced by Seth Sorskowski. Yeah. Uh, I, I consider... Okay, first of all, before anyone asks, Seth does explicitly say in several videos that you're free to use anything he comes up with in those videos. It's free range. So I take Jack as you know, just an NPC to throw in there as a cameo. And also because he does officially appear in the A Mother's Love scenario. So as far as I'm concerned, that's free license for me to do with him whatever I want. And that was one of the little adventures they did between the prologue and the main story. Exactly. Now, ignoring that apparently Echo just has a type, um, <laughs> I can call her out for that. 
she knows exactly what I'm referring to. She has the, but it's it's also just that Jack is, you know, a really big character and an influential sort of thing at that. You know, it's, and I think like you know Jack is the prototypical uh, Call of Cthulhu PC, and so seeing him come up and like also be Bennett's friend is a big part of the story, and so, you know. In the side hustle, which we'll never get to hear, but I can talk about, uh, Jack really got a bunch of off-screen development where he falls back into alcoholism because his girlfriend's gone, he overcomes it, he realizes that, like, you know, hey, I should be allowed to feel these things, and, you know, I shouldn't be worried about her, only to be proven correct. That's what's devastating. Jack gets proven correct about all of his worries about the woman he loves, and that is devastating. I think if we do Children of Fear, how I see it is that it will be two campaigns, one in 1927 and one in 1923. The 1923 campaign being the actual Children of Fear. The 1927 campaign would probably be Jack Malone, uh, would be... Uh, it would probably be Lewis, Prahit, uh, Toprak, and Rama, all traveling in the Himalayas and China and India, just trying to figure out what happened in 1923, and then we would do flashbacks to that campaign to start piecing the mystery together. And to just kind of stitch together what Nash means by that. One thing that had been looming for a long time in the campaign since Vienna was uh, Zach, who played Toprak, had the ability to ask any question. And I think it really says something about both Zach as a player and Toprak as a character in terms of conserving that type of power. And also the change that, like, it was not a selfish thing that Toprak did. Like, he gave that ability to Jack from a mutual friend that they both cared about to get answers. I think Jack hasn't opened the book yet. I think in 1927, in the Himalayan expedition, they will discover, well, like, maybe what's in the book to get a definite answer about some very strange questions or where there might not be a source. But it will prove difficult, to say the least. Uh, this is speaking in the future, though, and I will have to remain hush-hush on what I think of Children of Fear when that inevitably arrives. Right. So, for now, you just mentioned this a little bit ago, but your side hustle, your side campaign. Yeah. You included those characters into that finale. Was mostly, that always your intention? Uh, mostly because I made a promise to them. There was really, it was just like, eh, why not? I'll have you cameo in the finale. Why not? This is purely just appeasing my friends and had nothing really to do with the whole, like, sort of grand line. But I knew ever since, like, uh, April of this year that, that would probably happen. It was only three sessions long, and if you're curious, it used the scenarios The Haunting. It used the scenario of, uh, let's see, Ladybug, Ladybug, Fly Away Home as the finale, and in the middle it used Blackwater Creek. Uh, all of which had, like, ties back to Boston and a conspiracy going on in there, and more connections to the Church of the Passover Angel to finally tie that mystery up in full. Hell, they even found a marine macrometer there, which is why they knew to go destroy that clock when they saw it in China. Any other group wouldn't have done that. I just, I thought, 
it was just so cool that you kind of gave them that little cameo. Because also in terms of the players, we got this new set of not just like pre-generated characters, essentially, but there was so much thought put into each one. Oh, and I would have loved to explore that more. Oh, yeah. But again, okay. cameo. As I, as I put little... it, like one of the other big influences on this and one of the movies I watched, uh, Buckaroo Banzai Adventures in the Eighth Dimension. <laughs> uh, so for those of you who don't know, Buckaroo Banzai is this pulp film that was made in the 80s, and uh, it never got a sequel. And because of this fact, there are so many references to things in there that would happen in the past or in the future that we will never get to see. And so I think part of the appeal of putting that cameo in there is doing what Buckaroo Banzai does. There's a scene in, uh, in it where two characters are walking in a laboratory, and somebody asks, Why is there a watermelon there? And then the other guy goes... I'll tell you about it later. And so the idea is that that probably was a reference to something we don't get because we don't have the source material for it. It's like watching a Marvel film, but not knowing what anyone is referring to by the rest of the universe. <laughs> it is a wonderful experience uh, because where else am I going to get Christopher Lloyd pretending to be John Big Bootay? It's a weird, weird film. Uh, it has some of my most favorite quotable lines, including, but not limited to, evil, pure and simple, from the eighth dimension, and, uh, don't be mean. There's no time to be mean, because wherever you are, you're just there. This movie is wonderful. <laughs> Just such a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver that probably has no plot significance at all. But with that island that we went to for the finale, mm -hmm. were you ever gonna like plan to like let's just make the volcano erupt? Were you? Did you uh, it's a dormant volcano. They built a. Uh, they I mean they built a volcano base in there, so it's a good hiding spot. Okay. This is also a reference to the James Bond film. Uh, I want to say it's. Ah, you, uh, you only live twice. And I hate the Bond films with a passion, but that finale in You Only Live Twice is really damn good reference material for this finale, so uh, I'm not gonna, like, deny it. But, like, hiding, like, oh, there's a bunch of smoke coming out of that volcano. That's not weird at all. But, oh, it's a rocket. Oh, shit. You see, it's it's a generic uh, sort of base thing, but it's also, you know, it has its mythos significance because it's the third location for where the Deep Ones are, which I think was just a good way of putting it. Yeah, and even if you hadn't, like, purposely chosen a mother's love, or did you purposely choose I it because of the Deep Ones? I purposely chose a mother's love because of the Deep Ones. Okay. Like, you need an excuse to know Deep Ones exist and that this is, like, they are part of the plot. To some extent. It's, a, it's actually why you get a statue of Cthulhu as one of the artifacts you can find. Nice. Yeah, whatever happened to that statue we had of Cthulhu? I mean, Clara and her will donated it back to the Trust. So. Okay. Good to know for the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. But back to prior to that, the finale... Let's go on to the tea party for a bit, which you have been teasing. The tea party the at the longest end of the time. Universe. 
So I knew I wanted an opportunity to be able to talk to all of you about how you did, because the scoring system is built into the campaign. I modified it a bit for my changes, but other than that, I stayed close to what the scoring system asks for. And I think I, the Tea Party at the End of the Universe is a good way to just take a moment for the characters to discuss what happened, get some final closure, and then wrap up everything. And I felt like having a weird tea party in Dream Sri Lanka was just kind of an interesting way to go about it. Like, especially because it's just surreal enough that it's going to feel, like, unstable in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it just felt trippy. Mm -hmm. No visuals to tell us it was trippy, but it's, it's the fact that also how peaceful it was. Yeah. Because by then... The die was cast, essentially. There's no changing it. We might as well see how you did. Uh, I will reveal what would have happened if you... Because, okay, there's the version where the world ended, and I was very confident you were not going to get that by the time we finished uh, Australia. I was like, there's no way the world's ending. So it came down to if you got the good ending where nothing happens. But there was... Here was what the middle horror would have been. The world doesn't end. However, in the period of Lovecraft's writing, which takes place from 1926 to 1935, there's this spike in mythos activity. This would have been an attempt to explain why that occurred, and so the Great Weirdening happens, where a whole bunch of mythos stuff is unleashed onto Earth, and, you ha and humanity has to deal with it. That would have been what would happen if you went for the middle option, but you didn't get that, so that's what would have happened. How close were we to the middle option? Pretty close. If you didn't bash a couple of clocks or if you failed to kill one or two people, you could have gotten the middle option. Uh, but because you bashed enough clocks, you got there. We really debated on what to do with those clocks on occasion. But yeah, the purpose of the clocks was to do the ritual in sync. In perfect sync. Right. So tampering with or destroying those clocks fucks the ritual. Yeah, it works to weaken the potency. Yeah. Which, yeah, there were a few items on both sides that, that we could have used or we could have destroyed in this case. Yeah. One of those that we haven't talked about yet is the Eye of Light and Darkness. The Eye of Light and Darkness, as mentioned, divides the score of any chapter by two. And that's very useful, and if you went back to Egypt to cast it, like, you could have told me you did that, and I would have been like, yeah, that's fair. And that would have divided the Egypt score by two, which would have really reduced your total, your point total. But you'd have to find a new place to cast the spell, so you'd probably go back to the Bent Pyramid and give that a shot. You could have also cast it in Australia or in Shanghai at the top of the volcano. Mm, that would have been so that would have been so clutch though. Yeah, if things went wrong. I think Kenya was the perfect time to do that. And then I don't know who proposed this, but having all the people that were like imprisoned at that time to help with the sanity loss. No, that was clever. That was really clever. That was really clever. I was ready to just give up a good chunk to get that advantage. But... I, I was I was personally hoping that you were going to use the uh, the onk to negate the willpower cost, but you would have to still be chanting for a whole day. We don't have time for that. We got a sitting duck situation. Heck no. 
So I guess as we kind of wrap up here, what's some like just general GM philosophy questions you got for me? In the case of, you know, after these sessions, you would let us know the potential pathways that we didn't know. Ah, yes. Do you do that in the case to just kind of open our own horizons or mindsets to really thinking through on future consequences? Yes, uh, that's part of it. The other part is to really emphasize to you, yes, your choice did matter. Showing you a negative consequence you avoided or a positive consequence you could have gotten is very useful, though I tend to lean towards the former. Because, like, saying you avoided a negative consequence is better than saying here's something better you could have done. Because that sounds like I told you so. Uh, saying you dodged a negative consequence makes you feel clever. Um, and I think that's kind of a big part of it, like, showing what's going on that, like, hey, this could have been is much more powerful. It's much more, it's much more, you know, like, oh, we really did have an impact. You know, we matter, full stop. So, so that worked, I think, particularly well. Were there any big, I guess, character decisions in terms of NPC that you regret doing? In terms of NPCs? Mm-hmm. Ugh. Whistle brought the crackle back for the finale. Uh, that was one of them. I kind of wish I... I don't think there's anyone I really would go back and, like, say, I I'd redo this guy. Like, I feel relatively assured of myself that's, like, no, nobody in particular was portrayed terribly. And I don't think I did anything I would truly, like, 100% work on, on a character. I do still hold that maybe I shouldn't have said with the freaking bunny, the 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 mafioso guy on the on the boat. Kind of wish maybe I didn't make that comment about the harem that felt a bit too over the line in my mind. It worked, and he made him feel like an asshole, but I wouldn't do that again. So in terms of those, because that was completely your own decision, and we, we talked about that earlier in terms of just giving more time to have Bennett become a member and a crucial one, a crucial function for that team. Would you have liked to have added a few more into that in hindsight? No, I think Bennett got the just the right amount. Just enough. Uh, in a perfect world, if I was really out there, I would have made Bennett the friend of an entire campaign before this, but uh, that's not in the cards. It wasn't in the cards. I didn't think to do it at the time, but no, I think Bennett got just enough time for what the campaign needed out of him. And for those decisions, for those intermediate stories. So we already went over misdues mm -hmm. in that in terms of uh, Jack. And uh, we also had uh, Mother's Love, which mm -hmm. we talked about. Mother's Love was Jack. Misdues was the really good mafioso scenario, which I thought was great, especially with Sticky Jack wanted from the very beginning. And having the robberies occur shortly after you succeed. Uh, the murder mystery was my completely own original idea, well, ripped off from a movie. But I will say there were plot lines that were not investigated. The, the initial newspaper I gave had more plot lines to look into. Oh, yes, I forgot about also uh, 
the, the, the lost episode of... The Dead Light. The Dead Light. Uh, but with... There were alternates. Uh, first of all, the Death Ray scenario. Uh, the Was it the Disintegrator in the Pulp Cthulhu book? That was an option. They didn't go for it. Uh, the Haunting was also an option in there. They didn't go for it. But those scenarios would have had them investigate a haunted house and uh, whatever scenarios they chose to do. Uh, the way I viewed it is that, like, whichever scenarios you picked would have told you what the scroll and what the dagger are. Because wherever you went would have told you something different about each of those artifacts. So, like, I wanted the scenario they chose to be what determined their powers. So the rack dagger was because they went there, which, oh, I forgot that they had the rack dagger for that final fight. Good thing you forgot about that. <laughs> Ugh, that's Oops. such a powerful weapon. But yeah, the rack dagger or the scroll or the... Yeah, they would have told you what the scroll does as well. So, like, I wanted those powers to work that way. Because no matter what, the scroll and the dagger get stolen and you find the scroll and the dagger. But your choices would have determined what they were. And that's what I think was more interesting. Was, like, letting that be choice. Who is your favorite kind of historical carrier, carrier, historical <laughs> character cameo? Uh, Taha Hussein, full stop. Uh, as much as I love putting in Young Cab and Blanche Calloway, like as much as I love them, or as much as I love Langston Hughes, it's Taha Hussein because nobody knows who he is in America, but he's probably such an influential and important figure in Egypt that just getting to talk about, like, you know, the life of Taha is such a is such a joy for me, especially having taken that history of modern Egypt class. This is in terms of your own preparation for these sessions, since we're talking about GM philosophy. For one thing, when was the initial thought that you want to run this with this group? When did that hit you? At the end of Horror on the Orient Express, I pulled to figure out what we were going to do next when I got my turn again. And that's when I learned we were doing last on our laptop. And so... Uh, I uh, acquired the PDF and then, you know, kind of started skimming through it, getting a feel for it, because uh, Nagel always wanted to be in part of that camp. Like, half the reason was because Nagel really wanted to do this. And then as I kept looking through and uh, looking at stuff, eventually I then, you know, bought two used copies of the books, and then I began to read through all of those. This was about in the last third of Centralia that I read through this in depth, cover to cover. All of them? All two of the books, yes. In, it, in how much time? In the last third of Centralia. So okay. Like the course of a couple of months. Okay, yeah. Because okay, Centralia had about like 34 episodes. So that's yeah. a good 11. Oh, gosh. Okay, so. So I read through the entirety of these two books. So I know what the plot is. And then I'm going to see if I can actually pull this up. I don't know if I still have this lying around. Uh, the to help me kind of get a visual of everything, at some point I did this. Hopefully it's in here. Don't mind me. Uh, let's see the will. The last one's just been a bit What? Reign of Terror. Handouts? Sorry, this is going to take me a little bit. Uh, okay. Oh, no. Okay, I gotta go. Probably. 
Okay, well, I had this flow chart of like all the scenarios I wanted to do and run and where they would probably go and what would happen and what leads to what. And to me, that was sort of the thing I just kept looking back to whenever I was uh, working on any of this. I cannot find it for the life of me. But yeah, I was working on that in particular with just this giant flow chart to know where everything was. I sat down, I kind of structured it out. In my notebook, I wrote a summary of each chapter and what's happening in it. Okay. And then from there, it was just a matter of rereading the section before then and just preparing for it in advance. However, I did kind of lose what the original plot was of the conspiracy at one point, the events of the Carlisle expedition, because I really, really just did not read Jack Brady's handout close enough, and uh, that led to some confusion on my part, but... Other than that, I'd like to think I stayed pretty on task. Uh, let's see, yep. Yep, the evil plan. Uh, let's see what's happened to each member of the, of the expedition. Chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdowns. And, yep, there we go. And my information on each character. Phenomenal. Like, just in terms of, like, how fast do you... As time went on, it became less and less prep. Early on, it was about making sure I got more out of it. But eventually, we got to the point where I was like, I just know what's going to happen. And I can just, like, roll with the punches. Okay. In terms of other resources, I mean, you mentioned the Discord you're a part of that's for Maskable. Or it, it was it a Reddit? It was a, it was a Discord. It wasn't okay. that much of Okay, you didn't use it too I didn't use it too much. I just kind of kept looking at it. But I was like, wow, you guys obsess over the weirdest of things. No, I don't care what the gold exchange value is for all the Peruvian gold you've melted. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, I do. Uh, that's the I kind of the accuracy and attention to the detail that I, as a historian, have to go, who the fuck cares? And me as a chemist wanting to just focus on the minutia. Huh. But with that, are there any videos or other media that you would recommend for someone who would want to run this campaign? Uh, the videos of Seth Skorkowski, that's for certain. But he never, he's never he's done never run it, but I find his philosophy useful. Okay. Uh, let's see, Dungeon Craft's video on the top uh, Cthulhu, uh, called Cthulhu campaigns. He has some very good comments on Mask of Nyarlathotep in that top ten list. Uh, if you can, I recommend the old Masks of Nyarlathotep companion document, though I didn't really rely heavily on that. I only just kind of skimmed that document, but it is, it's pretty useful for a lot of people. And finally, and this is just a bit of a personal thing, it was really just kind of following GM philosophy rather than fully going from the campaign, though I have been told by a lot of people the HP Lovecraft Historical Society's prop set is really damn good, but... I'm running digital. There's no need for that. And with this being the second campaign you've done for this podcast, originally with, with Horror on the Orient Express, that was the Trail of Cthulhu system. Mm -hmm. For this one, you used, like, the Pulp Cthulhu. Masks and Iron Athletep is notoriously known for being combat-centric and very heavy on the fighting, so I wanted to go to Pulp Cthulhu to give you a fighting chance to survive, to make it more about cool epic fistfights, and to still have mechanics to solve mysteries. I think Pulp Cthulhu is perfect for Mastodon. Call of Cthulhu regular works, 
but I think it's too lethal for what the campaign requires. That being said, for Children of Fear, I probably will return to Trail of Cthulhu. And now that I'm a bit older and I'm GM'd a bit more, I kind of might be able to do that system better this time around. Actually make it about the resource management of that game. I see. Because, yeah, I assume it would, because of Children of Fear, is that going to be in the Himalayas? It's going to be in the Himalayas for yeah. the most part. Like, you're going to be traveling all around from China to uh, India, so via Tibet, so... You're going to be, like, climbing, exploring still, and we might still have some pulpishness to it, but I'm going to bring that more down to Earth. How would you run, in terms of mechanically, if you were to do that 40s? Oh, Pulp Cthulhu nonstop. Pulp Cthulhu nonstop. Uh, Especially because I need the rules for ridiculous stunts, luck, the way luck spending works, and just... All of this, all of that entails, it would be incredibly fun to do that because it's just, uh, again, I think Danger 5 has started to affect how I see that show, but again, how I see this one. But I think uh, just having it be episodic, hey, pick a character, you're going to go on a mission, and then, you know, and of course, as always, kill Hitler. But, uh, you know, that's sort of the point is just to have like incredibly goofy uh over-the-top antics, and Pulp Cthulhu is designed for that. Trail of Cthulhu is, again, more for mystery-solving and, like, subtlety, which I think is, like, it's more understated as a system. Pulp Cthulhu is, I want the system to be the main appeal for why we're playing this. Uh, Trail of Cthulhu is, I want the mystery to be the appeal for this. And for 2023? 2023, we're just doing Call of Cthulhu normal. Uh, for uh, Simulacrum Unbound. Just normal, run-of-the-mill, nothing fancy. I'm just going to make this quick because we're familiar with the system and I want it to be very much uh, rooted in what we're familiar with right now. I only want to switch systems or go do something new if we're going to have a lot of time to play with it. I see. So would you rank? Because, I mean, when, when I think of you just based off our interactions, I know you know a lot more different systems, but in terms of the podcast... You were like Call of Cthulhu, dude. Yeah, and I do want to branch out into other systems at some point. But that's going to take time and also a learning curve. It's going to take time and learning curves. And personally, uh, it it really just kind of depends on everybody's schedule and what happens in the future or whatever future projects that I decide to do. I really want to try Blades in the Dark, especially with A Fistful of Darkness, because I think reading that system is fascinating to me. If we were all in meat space, oh, I would so run Dread. I just want to. Yes! Like, I want to run Dread. I want, I want to run Dread, dude. Like, uh. I just don't own a Jenga set. And, uh, what else? It's hard to do it with rocks. And, uh. What else would I want to run? I think, like, other systems I have that I think I'm particularly interested in. I am running my Cyberpunk campaign finally, so I'm getting to try that out. And. I am particularly interested in uh, running, what was it, what was it, uh, you know, I would run Fiasco as a one-shot again if I could. Uh, there was just a whole bunch of systems I would love to run. But really, just in general, I find, like, uh, as I tend to think of it, what story is the system trying to tell? and then run based off of that. Like, that to me is, like, what I look for in a system, and I try to cater my story to the system itself. That, that's what I go for. That's a good way to think about it. 
because it is a tool for the story, the adventure you want to portray. Uh, I, I just have this incredible, aggravating hatred for people who try to make 5th edition fit everything that they wanted to do. And I have made an entire podcast at, uh, editorial just on this very aggravating opinion I have. I am part of Facebook groups of people who are like, I am begging you to play something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's gotten tremendously popular. It has, and 5th edition's done a lot for the hobby. I, I won't deny that fact. I just wish people wouldn't think it's the only thing, and I'm glad more people are playing other systems. You know, some of them aren't really for me, and, like, I understand why, but it's like, uh, for example, great game. No disrespect, no shade towards it, but I will never play Thirsty Sword Lesbians. You can't make me play Thirsty Sword Lesbians. It's not for me. It's not the kind of fiction I want to tell. Uh, but I think, you know, I'm glad that system exists and it's finding people for it. I'm glad people are finding masks or they're finding uh, Monster of the Week. Uh, and you know what? That's great that those systems are getting more popular. Powered by the Apocalypse, I think, is going to be very big in the future for the hobby. Is that cult? Um, is that by Powered of the Apocalypse? I believe it technically is, yes. Uh, cult. Uh, all the games I've mentioned so far have been Powered by the Apocalypse games, especially. Just because it's such a good base for a system. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, if I may, I think we're basically at the end of the interview. Honestly, I think the last thing I wanted to ask you was just in terms of the players, in terms of when they first introduced their characters to how they turned out. I think Clara certainly got the most dramatic shift. Charlie stayed most to book. Lewis really got some very interesting development in there as for who he was. And Toprak uh, astounds me at times when there are very bold decisions he made. Giving away the book at the end was such a big moment of character growth because he gave away an artifact, and that's something he typically doesn't do. Uh, and I think Edith definitely continues to like surprise me and really you know getting that sacrifice at the end it's a shame we didn't get to know the character longer but it paid off i think uh and i would like to kind of end this with something i have for the people at home i wanted to read off something from my notes uh, these were the 10 commandments i would read to myself every day before i ran the session commandment one the player's enjoyment is paramount Commandment 2. Keep awesome per second high. Commandment 3. Portray a fantastic world. Commandment 4. Leave questions unanswered. Commandment 5. Be like water. Commandment 6. Because I'm the GM, that's why. 7. Commandment 7. Is someone bored? Punch them. Commandment 8. Reward the clever. Commandment 9. But not too much. Commandment 10. Whatever happens, I'm going to have fun today. Commandment 11, there are exceptions. Uh, and I want to ask you before we go, did I stick to those? Yeah, I feel like you hit all of these. Yeah. Then I call it a success. Probably the best campaign I've run for now. Thank you for... Just letting me be a part of this. No, no, you're welcome. Absolutely. 
been a pleasure having all of you on board, and I'm just happy this train is still rolling. Uh, here's looking forward to year three. And with that, good night. Have a good rest of your day, wherever you are. Good luck. Peace. Out. <laughs>